Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. There's a man named Ernest Kurtz who wrote what's become the history of the Alcoholics Anonymous movement. Uh, The book is called Not God. He chose this title because he said the foundational problem alcoholics have is that way down deep, they refuse to acknowledge limitation and weakness and being fallen. Uh, They tend to live under the delusion that they're in control of everything, when the truth is they can't even control themselves. This is what he writes in his book. Fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I am not God. I'm not in control of my universe. I often cannot even control myself. I violate my own values. I want to do one thing, and then I do something else. Now, of course, this I am God illusion is not limited to alcoholics. Do you want to guess what's behind the very first sin ever committed? In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It was the first temptation. You will be like God. You won't have to submit to anyone else. You can decide what's right and wrong. People have been falling for that for a long time. You will be like God. This is at the heart of sin and spiritual confusion. Now, recovery meetings always start with a reminder of spiritual sanity. The first thing people say when they talk at one of those meetings is, my name is Matt, I'm an alcoholic. Like just to be clear on who I am not and who I am. Like I am not God. I think it was Anne Lamott who said, the biggest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. Failure to understand that you are not God can destroy your spiritual life. So today we're gonna study a man who's about to learn this very painful lesson. He's not God. Daniel 2 verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Notice it says in the second year of his reign, uh, he's been king for over a year now. Uh, Assyria, which had been Babylon's uh, chief enemy, completely collapses five years earlier. So Nebuchadnezzar is the absolute dictator of an, of an empire and reigns with unchallenged authority over the known world. I mean, he has uh, youth and strength and wealth and fame and power that is like unparalleled in his world. He's the most secure person on the face of the earth. Essentially, he's a god. I mean, that's how people thought of him. But he's a god with um, insomnia. He can't sleep. And he finds a year into having everything he's always wanted that everything is all wrong and he's troubled. Now, people who live under this I am God delusion are always just one bad dream, just uh, one bad night's sleep away from utter insecurity because they're building their house on the sand. In the second year of his reign, he's troubled. 
He calls his advisors together, tells them about his trouble, about the dream, and so on. And then verse 4, Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And notice that phrase. We'll come back to that later. They answered the king in Aramaic. May the king live forever. Let me ask you at this point. How well do you think his advisors did at reminding him that he was not God? Not too well. Like, be eternal, king. You know, like, may you never die. I want to give you a kind of picture of Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. And it was reinforced by the, by the people around him. Nebuchadnezzar saw the world as revolving around him. He's in control. He's in charge. People exist to make him happy, to fulfill his joy and pleasure. A lot of people live under this delusion. Well, Nebuchadnezzar tells his advisors that he wants to know what he dreamed, because apparently he can't remember. And they say they can't help him. And he has a strong response to that. And now we see another aspect of the king's character, of the I'm God syndrome. The world revolves around me. People who study human development speak of frustration tolerance. They say people who are mature in character exhibit high frustration tolerance. They're able to exercise patience and delayed gratification and so on. Immaturity, on the other hand, is marked by low frustration tolerance. I can't stand it if I don't get my way immediately. Now, in verses 10 and 11, uh, the wise men have told the king that they can't help him with this particular problem. And then here's the king's response in verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. How would you assess Nebuchadnezzar's ability to tolerate frustration, high or low? In case you're not sure, execution would be an indication of low frustration tolerance. In fact, he loses it so badly, he gets paranoid. Look at verse 8. This is a very interesting king. The king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. Like he comes up with a conspiracy theory. He's paranoid now. He says to all of them after making this impossible request, I see what's going on. There's like this conspiracy here. You've teamed up to tell me misleading and wicked things. You're just out to get, just out to get me. Now, can you imagine a politician being this emotionally immature? <laughs> you see, power has a way of confusing people about who's really at the center of the world. And this is not an unusual thing. Uh, there's a great story about Lyndon Johnson when he was president. Johnson had a cabinet meeting one time. He asked Bill Moyer to pray. Moyer was his press secretary and also an ordained Southern Baptist. So Lyndon Johnson asked him to pray. And so he did. But he was praying real quietly at the other end of the table. And so Johnson interrupted him in the middle of prayer and said, Speak up, Moyer. I can't hear you. And Bill Moyer said, I wasn't talking to you, sir. <laughs> I'm not God. Like we need to understand that patient acceptance of frustration in everyday life is crucial to the formation of our character. It's a little reminder that you're not at the center of the world. So tomorrow when you're frustrated and you'll probably be, probably be frustrated sometime tomorrow, like when you're stuck in traffic or your kids spill something or 
a task takes longer than you had planned, instead of getting all bent out of shape, instead of giving into road rage or spill rage or task rage, just remember, I'm not God. Remind yourself that. I'm not God. The world doesn't revolve around me and it doesn't exist for the purpose of sparing me frustration. This is an opportunity for me to learn to be patient. You see, Nebuchadnezzar believes the world revolves around him and the results of that are self-preoccupation. All he can see is what's happening in his own little world. Now his advisors have another worldview. We see this in verses 10 and 11 when the king makes this unreasonable request. The astrologers answered the king, there's not a person on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Now, this is a very strong statement. No one can reveal it. No one can help with this problem except the gods, and they don't live among humans. This is a great question, actually, for humanity. Like, does God live on the earth? Does he care about you and me? Or are we left on our own to struggle along as best we can? Here's the way his advisors see the world. Here I am, and I live on this earth, and there's a God, but he's up in heaven, so uh, he can't help me with this problem. I can't contact him because this is, there's this barrier between God and me, and so I'm on my own. And when I have a problem, I have no place to go but right here. No one can solve this problem except the gods, and they don't live on earth. I think part of why that phrase is so poignant is there's this kind of ouch factor attached to it. Because I live with that reality sometimes. I don't believe that, but I live like I believe that sometimes. A problem enters my life, and instead of going to God about it, I just worry about it. I have a burden, and instead of placing it in his hands, I carry it around with me. I have an agenda, and instead of surrendering it to God, I want everyone around me to do what I want. I want my will, not God's will sometimes. And oddly enough, the results of this way of life, this worldview, ends up being the same as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. It ends up leading to self-preoccupation. All I see is me. And I end up with anxiety, you know, this constant state of worry because I've got to solve everything. And I feel inadequate because I know I can't handle it. And I fear because I have no hope. It's a horrible way to live. But then there's Daniel. Daniel and his friends go to God and they pray. And Daniel is given the interpretation of the dream. And in verse 20 and following, there's this magnificent hymn of praise. Praise to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them, even Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 24, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Notice Daniel seeks Arioch out. Uh, Daniel has the interpretation, so he initiates going to the guy who found him. But look at verse 25. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, 
I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, Arioch puts this little spin on the situation. The truth is, Daniel sought him out. Arioch was going to kill them all, right? But because he's going to Nebuchadnezzar and he wants to look good, he says, hey, look, I found this man. Essentially, what he's saying is, like, it wasn't easy, O king, but you have one highly resourceful guy on your staff. I combed through uh, the obscure ranks of these exiles. Like, who else would think of looking there? And I found what you need. Contrast this with Daniel's humility. Look at verse 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Now look at Daniel's response, contrast it to Arioch, verse 27. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel refuses to take credit for this. I am not that smart. Uh, not only that, notice another uh, detail in verse 36. Daniel goes on to describe the dream and then he interprets it. And look what he said in, says in verse 36. This was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. Why does he say we? Well, the writer intends for us to understand that Daniel here is including his friends who he gathered together when this challenge arose and who prayed for him and asked God to give them mercy and reveal the dream. And the interpretation went to Daniel, but Daniel doesn't take credit for it. It was his prayers and the prayers of his friends that led to the result. And so Daniel says, we will interpret the dream. I love this little detail. He wants his friends in on the credit. And in verse 49, at the very end of the story, after the king has honored Daniel enormously, it says, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon. At Daniel's request. He wants his friends in on the credit and he wants his friends in on the promotion. I love this aspect of Daniel's heart. I want a heart like Daniel's heart. Because if I'm not God, I don't have to get all bent out of shape about who gets the credit for what. I can just be free of all that kind of junk. If I'm real clear that I am not God, I don't have to get obsessed over image management or self-promotion. Daniel doesn't have to promote himself. He knows that God sees and God knows. And I'll tell you, I think this is part of why I'm deeply drawn to people who don't take themselves so seriously. Don Shula, Hall of Fame head coach of the Miami Dolphins, was on vacation in New York back in his coaching prime. And he went to the movies with his wife and there was just a handful of people in the theater. And when they walked in, the people applauded. And Shula was pretty impressed with himself that he was famous even there. And he nudged his wife and he said, I guess there's no place we can go where I'm not known. Just before the movie started, a guy came over and shook his hand and Shula said, I'm surprised you folks know me here. And the guy's response was, am I supposed to know you? We were just glad you came in. The manager said he wasn't going to start the movie until there were 10 people here. Don't take yourself too seriously. Now, Daniel is very careful to give credit to God and to give credit to his friends. There's just this uh, selflessness about Daniel. He's not God. And I love that about him. 
No wise man could do this, king, but there is a God in heaven. Now we will interpret the dream. King, could you remember my friends? Well, then he goes on to tell the king about the dream and he begins to describe it in verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And he goes on to describe it. It's got a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and belly of uh, and thigh of bronze and feet of iron and clay. It's this, is, is this image of uh, awesome power. And best of all for Nebuchadnezzar is his own part in the statue. Verse 37, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the, the sky. Where, wherever they are, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. You'll notice now Daniel emphasizes the extent of his power. Nebuchadnezzar is not just ruler over human beings. He's the king of the beasts, uh, the field, and the birds of the air. Like he had much greater power than political rulers in our day. Like imagine someone calling our president the ruler over the beasts of the field. Like we've never had a president of the birds. But Nebuchadnezzar is ruler over people and every creature. If he wants any of them, they're his. The dream is actually going good so far, but then Daniel keeps going. After you, another kingdom will arise. The word that's translated kingdom could also be translated ruler. It could be described rulers that come after Nebuchadnezzar. The text doesn't say who or what they are. Uh, and at the base of the statue are feet of clay, iron mixed with clay. And Daniel makes it real clear that all uh, this power, all this splendor stands on a merely human foundation and turns out to be utterly vulnerable. And not only that, one day it's all gonna be blown away. Look at verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not just by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. And if you've ever been in a culture where the wheat gets threshed out and you see the chaff, it just gets scattered to the wind. That's the picture here. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then on to verse 44, he's given this interpretation of this. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another person. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And of this kingdom, there will be no end. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, Daniel here is prophesying what would be the hinge of human history, uh, but he wouldn't live to see it. Neither would centuries of people to follow him. And they would wonder, will, will what Daniel prophesied ever 
come to pass? Like, what will it look like? And then one day, an obscure carpenter from an obscure town began his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is now at hand. Do you understand why people trembled when they heard those words? This is what the world was waiting for. Jesus was the rock, not cut by human hands, not prepared by human beings. This is why Peter calls him in 1 Peter 2, 4, the living stone. The living stone, it's right out of Daniel. Rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him. This in the Old Testament is a vision of the kingdom of God breaking into human history. This is Daniel's view of the world. Here is this earth and here is my place on it. And I'm just one of lots of other people. And in heaven is this great big God, an infinite God, so big that watching over this planet is no trouble for him. It's no sweat for him because he's God. He's never, uh, he never has a problem sleeping. He never uh, has trouble with anxious thoughts or bad dreams. And not only that, but this God whose kingdom will one day come to this earth has a direct relationship with me. Like Daniel's view is, I'm not God, I'm just one of many. I don't have to promote myself. I don't have to make sure I get credit for stuff. God knows and God sees. Therefore, it doesn't make any difference if I'm just a lowly political prisoner and you're the most powerful and secure person on the face of the earth. It doesn't really matter. There is a God in heaven and he's not just in heaven, he's right here and he knows and he cares. I'm not God but I'm his friend and I'm not on my own. And so Daniel's life is filled with humility instead of self-preoccupation and with confidence instead of anxiety and with a sense of this efficiency in his God instead of personal inadequacy and a spirit of courage, not fear. And we'll talk about a couple implications that flow out of this understanding of who is in charge in just a moment. In 1963, five years before his assassination, Dr. King published a book called Strength to Love. Its pages are full of sermons that cover topics of religious values and segregated realities. And if you were to thumb through some of those sermons, you would find woven into them quotes and ideas about surrendering. In my reading and interpretation of those sermons, Dr. King notes in part that the racial inequalities he saw and experienced called for a different type of surrender than his faith did. When expressing his thoughts around the racial segregation and racism, he wrote, courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. A cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances, placing this idea of surrendering in an arguably negative camp. But then when discussing his faith, Dr. King said, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. Both realities of surrendering, the necessity to surrender to God, but also the movement of not surrendering to cultural injustice is what Dr. King lived into. And this is what we see here in this chapter of Daniel. Old King Neb obviously has a lot of personal surrendering that needs to be done surrendering his ego and identity to God. He's haunted both in his real life and in his dreams because of his control issues, his ego issues, his own godlike mentality. 
And then we have Daniel on the other side of surrender. Daniel's people, as we learned last week, had been removed from their home and their land. They were given new languages, new customs, and even new names. But Daniel didn't surrender to everything. In chapter 1, we read that he didn't defile himself with the royal food and wine. And then in chapter 2, we see that Daniel didn't surrender to worshiping another god, but instead gathered his community and pleaded and prayed to God and ultimately was able to interpret Neb's dream because of his lack of surrender. This idea of surrendering is one that we probably find ourselves in. Maybe you've been holding on to something in your life, an identity, an expectation, an ego, and it's causing you turmoil or stress or fear. You're carrying a lack of surrender like King Nebuchadnezzar, and in the prompting from Dr. King, you need to work on consistent and total surrender to God. Or maybe you, like Daniel, you've pushed against something and chosen courage over surrendering, but you're growing weary or you feel like your push isn't producing. And maybe this week, it's a reminder to choose to not surrender and to pray. All of this folds into what it means to understand and live into who God is and what it means for God to be in charge of everything and over all things. Surrender isn't easy, but it's biblical. Surrendering will allow us to live more deeply into being children of God, created in God's image to do God's work. So friends, find some time this week to think about what surrender is and what it looks like in your life. And if you're not fully convinced on the whole thing, Matt's going to talk about two implications that we see in the story of Daniel when the characters surrendered in their different ways and when they understood who's in charge. All right, I want to talk about two more implications that flow out of understanding who's in charge. Uh, The first implication has to do with Daniel's deep desire that Nebuchadnezzar understands spiritual reality, that Nebuchadnezzar come face to face with truth. And the implication is this, when I'm clear that I'm not God and that I'm uh, lost apart from God, I will devote myself. I will take all kinds of risks. I'll pay all kinds of prices. I will devote myself to helping people meet God. See, among other things, this book, the book of Daniel, is a book on inviting. Now, we talk at Blue Oaks about inviting. It's one of our core values. Uh, For Daniel, going into exile, which looks like the end of the world, results in presenting Daniel with the invitation opportunity of a lifetime. A lot of times people find themselves in exile in uh, a difficult marketplace condition or a different family, a difficult family condition or a difficult neighborhood condition or so on. And Daniel would say, it may be the invitation opportunity of a lifetime. In verse four, we saw this already. It says that the advisors answered the king in Aramaic. Uh, there may be a little footnote in your Bible that indicates that from here, Daniel 2.4, all the way through chapter seven, the text is all in Aramaic. Uh, The first chapter in Daniel is in the Hebrew language, which of course, virtually the entire Old Testament is in, except for a few real isolated brief spots. But here are six chapters in Aramaic. This is unusual. How often do you pick up a book uh, written in English and have it switch to Italian or French in the second chapter? I mean, it doesn't happen. It wouldn't sell very much if it did. So why does the writer do this? I'll tell you what I think. 
Aramaic was the most common language of the Middle Eastern world at the time. A little bit like English in most of the Western world is the most common language. It's as though the writer was signaling that now God is not just a God of one tribe, one country, one language, one tongue, but he is the God of the whole world. We sometimes think we're the first to deal with diversity and multiculturalism and stuff like that. It's all over the book of Daniel. Another detail I want you to notice, and I won't take time to read all these verses right now, but if you look at verse 18, 28, 37, and 44, uh, this is a name for God that's used only here in the second chapter of Daniel and only in three books in the Old Testament altogether. Uh, it's the phrase, the God of heaven. Usually in the Old Testament scriptures, they use Hebrew names for God, Yahweh or Elohim. But Daniel wants to make a very clear uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, this God is not just Israel's God. Because Nebuchadnezzar is used to people from other countries thinking that they have their gods and Babylon has its gods. This is not just one of many gods. This is the God of the whole earth, the God of heaven. And he's Lord of Babylon as well as Israel. And he's Lord over Nebuchadnezzar as well as Daniel, whether Nebuchadnezzar knows that or not. And he's Lord over Jerusalem and he's Lord over Rome and he's Lord over New York and he's Lord over Washington and he's Lord over San Francisco and he's Lord over Pleasanton and he's Lord over wherever you are. You see, Daniel is inviting Nebuchadnezzar to get things right with God. And he's using, he's using great skill and tact. He gives Nebuchadnezzar the good news first. You're the head of gold. That's the good news. But then he gets real frank. The statue has feet of clay and one day it's coming down and Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God, the God of heaven, and he's going to set things right one day. And so you'd better get right with him. Now, you've got to understand the drama of this moment. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, who could, without batting an eyelash, kill Daniel if he's offended. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die, and your kingdom is going to be swept away without a trace, so you'd better get right with God. I was thinking, what if we had a whole church full of Daniels with that kind of boldness with, when they share their faith? You know, last Sunday, I was greeting people on their way into church, and the thought occurred to me, everyone coming to church is here because someone had enough courage to develop a relationship and share their faith and make an invitation. And then I walked by the coffee area, and I noticed someone waiting for a friend that she had invited. You know, she was in that vulnerable place where she was just waiting and hoping that her friend would come. I was talking to someone a while ago and she said, I just want you to know, I've been asking a friend to come to church for months now and she finally agreed to come. She's coming next weekend, so don't mess up. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, I love that. I love that we get to partner in helping people come to know the true God. And I hope you're real bold about inviting. You know, if Nebuchadnezzar was going to come to God, God was going to use this exiled political prisoner, Daniel. And Daniel had reasons to shrink back. I mean, he could have been killed, but instead he was extremely wise and incredibly bold. Daniel shares all this stuff 
And now it all comes down to this one moment for Daniel, his life and death. It like comes down to this one moment. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to open his heart to the God of heaven. Now, does he make a decision to put his trust in God at this point? Not really. We'll see that next week. He's still engaged in uh, pagan idolatry and oppressive violence, but Daniel doesn't give up on him because he knows the God of heaven is at work even on Nebuchadnezzar. You know, people's spiritual journeys are usually not straight up the ladder. Uh, Usually it's two steps forward, one step back. But if I know I'm not God and I know that Whoever is in my life, even if they're about as powerful and rich and secure as Nebuchadnezzar, they're lost without God. And I'll devote myself, I'll take risks, and I'll reallocate my time to introduce other people to the God of heaven. All right, the last implication. If God is God and I'm not God, I can stop worrying. I'm invited to stop worrying. And I don't lay this on you as something that you need to feel guilty about because a lot of times people who struggle with worry hear this in scripture, you know, it says that you're not supposed to worry and so they feel guilty and then they worry about how much they're worrying too much. And so I offer you this as an invitation. You don't have to worry. And when worry comes along, allow it to be a prompting of the spirit to remind you that, you know what? I am not God. I don't carry the world on my shoulders because my shoulders aren't big enough. So God, I'm just going to give this to you. And anytime a worry comes, just use it as a little prompt to give it to God. You see, Daniel is convinced in this foreign land under a a death threat from a tyrant that his life and world are in competent hands. And so he doesn't have to live in fear. And the writer brings this out, I think, in quite a a beautiful and striking way. The end of the story, it says in verse 48, the king placed Daniel in, in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Daniel now is going to uh, play at a whole new level. And as people are able to contribute in greater and greater ways to the kingdom, it may be visible, it may not be, but as people do that, new adventures open up to them. But here's what's interesting. In a story like this, at this point, after it's turned out that God has moved and wonderful things have happened to uh, this central character, Daniel, normally it would be at this point when a hymn of praise is offered to God, saying like, thank you, God, thank you, God, for this amazing turn of events that I've ended up being honored and praised and given this amazing opportunity. But the hymn of praise praise doesn't come at the end of the story. Where does it come? Back at the middle of the story, in verse 20. Now, remember, the king initially put all the wise men, including the exiles, including Daniel, under a death threat. They were all going to be executed. When Daniel offers this hymn of praise, he's talked to God, like he's received an interpretation, but externally, 
what's changed in his situation? Nothing. Like he's still under a death sentence. He hasn't met with Nebuchadnezzar yet. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to. Nebuchadnezzar could refuse to see him or Nebuchadnezzar could uh, go ahead and see him and be offended by what he says and execute him or laugh at him. There are all these possibilities to worry about. Nothing has changed except Daniel knows that this real big God has spoken. He knows who's driving the bus and that's enough. He can trust God. And the writer does this with great skill. As readers in verse 20, we have no idea yet how the story is gonna turn out. And we're asked to praise God with Daniel in the middle of the story that we don't know the end to yet. Why would the writer do that? You see, it's because this is my life. This is your life. Do you have problems you're dealing with? Well, you're in the middle of your story. And every time you join us online for a service like this, you do what Daniel did right in the middle of his story. You praise God in the middle of your story. And you don't know how your life is gonna turn out. Maybe some exciting and wonderful things are gonna happen. Maybe some real difficult and painful things are gonna happen. You don't know how your story is gonna turn out, but you know who's driving. And if you know whose hands this world is in, you can trust in his care and his confidence. And you can, in the middle of your story, pour out your heart in worship and adoration of this God who holds times and seasons in his hands and who sets kings and CEOs and presidents up and brings them down. So this week, just take a vacation from worrying. And anytime you feel a little anxiety, just stop and just say to yourself, I am not God. And so I'm gonna praise him in the middle of my story. All right, let me pray for you. Oh God, I pray that you would help us this week as we consider this reality that we are not God. We're not in control of the outcome of our story, but help us, God, in the middle of our story to praise you, to worship you, to give you the glory for your involvement in our lives. And, and I pray that when worry surfaces, when fear surfaces, I pray that those would be cues for us to turn to you and to trust you, that you are mighty God, that you are able to bring us through whatever this is, whatever that middle is, and see us to the end, where we can have uh, the kind of reality that Daniel lived in. Help us to live in that. Help us to, to see things the way that Daniel see, sees things. And God, I pray that you would just continue to work in us and shape us and mold us into the people that you want us to be. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.